We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Hello, I'm host Thomas O'Neill White. Today, we are here to talk business and community needs on Buffalo's East Side with business owner, community leader, and key bank branch manager, Rob Cornelius. Rob, thank you for being here with us today. How are you? Oh, man, I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. All right. The mass shooting on 514 revealed to the rest of the country and maybe some people in other people in Western New York, some of the inequities plaguing underserved areas of the city of Buffalo. You're in a in a unique position to talk about banking, business, and community needs. Can you tell me a little bit about your work as branch manager at KeyBank? Oh man, that's it's a, a good question. I'm branch manager at KeyBank Downtown Medical Campus. If you're familiar with the medical corridor, we're right there inside of Conventus, right next door to Buffalo General and Children's Hospital. Um, my biggest thing that I love to do as a branch manager is small business and helping our small businesses grow and educating our small businesses on the things they need to the things they need to be successful. What are some of the problems related to banking in 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 the black community? Education. A lot of us, a lot of our black community are not educated on banking. A lot of them want to keep money under the mattress or money in the safe. You know, their credit scores are not the they want to drive the most fanciest car, but the credit scores are not together. And a lot of people don't understand credit. You know, credit is the number one thing that moves America. You know, credit is not a race thing. Credit is a thing that if you don't have it, you're going to be behind the eight ball for a long time until you get it together. So I feel it's my job to empower and educate the community on credit, on small business, on how to open up your first business, on how to own your first home. You're, you have your hand in a lot of things. You're everywhere, it seems. Um, you're also, this Saturday... You're a part of a financial wellness seminar. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? Yes, yes. My company, RC Enterprises, which is myself and my wife, Rhonda, um, we started our company a few years ago. Um, it's always been my dream to educate. I've seen a lot of pop-up shops, and I don't see the education portion. I see people in a pop-up shop. What they'll do, they'll get the vendors there, and they're not educating the community. So this Saturday, you know, my thing was to educate the community. So I have myself speaking. Also, I'm a good friend of mine, the owner of the Oak Room, Dennis Wilson speaking. Um, Tamika Murphy from MMB Realty, one of the owners speaking. Also, Damian Woodall, another branch manager at KeyBank speaking. And we're just really there to educate the community, but also some health and wellness will be there. We have um, Northland Workforce will be there. We have Remedy will be there. Um, I have a young lady named Karen is actually doing... um. She told me don't call it Zumba. I don't know what else to call it. But she'll actually be there with a class from 1 to one thirty. You know, then we have a lot of vendors coming out. You know, just a great day for the community. It's the East Side's biggest pop-up shop, um, first annual. And I'm just excited about being the one to put this on for my community. 
Uh, getting back to the banking industry, from your perspective, is is the Community Reinvestment Act working as it should? Actually, it is. Actually, it is. You know, I see a lot of things going on behind closed doors that the community don't see. Community, community, they want instant grits. They don't want the grits to be. They don't want the grits your your grandma used to make that takes about a half hour. They want the instant grits. They want. They they want a bill to pass on Monday and they want to see change on Tuesday. That's not mm-hmm. the way things happen, you know. But if you look up and down Jefferson, things are changing on Jefferson. Things are changing on Main Street. Things are changing on Fillmore. You know, things are changing around the medical corridor. If you look at if you look at our city real good, things are changing. We just have to embrace the change that's coming to our community. So what you tell people is to have a little bit of patience and things will, Ex- good things will come. Exactly. And again. You're listening to Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Thomas O'Neill White, here with KeyBank branch manager, Rob Cornelius. You are at the Delvin Grider Community Center for President Biden's speech to Western New York in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. I know, because I saw you there and we spoke. What were your thoughts on his speech that day? You know, for one, I'm going to be honest. I never met a president in my life. So to be there in that atmosphere, in that room, but for him to take the time out to come to our city, you know, to embrace these families, because what people don't know behind closed doors, a good friend of mine, Wayne, he lost his mom, Miss Cheney, that day. And so to hear Wayne's feedback from not what the speech was, but what President Biden sat down with them individually, one at a time, and poured into them. And then the follow-up of bringing them back to the White House just, I think, last month, bringing the families back to the White House. You know, I tip my hat to President Biden. Some things we don't agree with with our president, but on this one, he got it right. You know, this one, he came to our city when we needed him most, and I think he got this one right. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that, with just his his presence there. Now, obviously, I wasn't there when he was speaking to the families, but the, the address he gave to the people of Western New York uh, was really—, was really uh, heartfelt yes and i want to i want to jump over to your work as a small business owner entrepreneurship again you're a small business owner how did you get your foot in the door i'll be honest um this has been if you talk to my mom she'll tell you that we grew up in the town gardens it was a little utility clause. I used to call my office when I was a kid, and I totally forgot about that till my mom had to remind me of that. I always wanted to be a businessman. I was either going to be a basketball player, but I stopped growing at 6'2", or a business <laughs> owner. But the business that God led me to was not the business I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a clothing store or something like that. But he led me into a business, RC Enterprise, which to help my community. You know, with RC Enterprise, my wife and I, we done done multiple Backpack giveaways, food drives. Um, actually, too, I assist Conway Machine with Conway Cares to make sure that he get Conway Cares off the ground and make things run smooth there with, you know, himself and also Toya. You know, so I really stumbled into it. Like, I thought I was going to be this big-time, you know, department store owner or, or a big-time promoter. But, you know, God moved me in a totally different direction to what I wanted to do. And best believe we will we will talk a little bit about uh, Conway the Machine and the Griselda guys later. Um, and as, as someone who has found success in the business sector, what what is something you would tell an aspiring entrepreneur uh, looking to start a business within the city? Um, do your research on location for one. 
let your business be your passion because if you're if you're doing your business just to get a quick buck and it's not your passion your business is going to fail you know do your research get your books together but get a strong team behind you you know no one no one is successful without a strong team you talk a little bit about your team um you know what honestly people think my team is this huge team but when i sit down at the table it's my wife and it's my daughter you know, IRC Enterprise, that's what it consists of. You know, we sit there, we get things together. You know, we come up with a plan. And trust me, I come up with a million ideals. And they're like, uh, that's, that might not be the one that we want to roll with this time. You know, <laughs> my wife recently had to tell me, pump your brakes on the ideal that I had, you know, for December. She's like, that's not going to happen this year. Mm-hmm. You know, and I kind of had to take a step back. That's like... uh me and my sister, when I when I present a new pair, a new article of clothing that I want to wear, she's like, "Thomas, no." <laughs> <laughs> That's how they treat us. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's for the best. <laughs> um, what what's to be done to get more minority and women owned businesses into these areas, especially uh, these east side corridors that you spoke of before, uh, Bailey, Jefferson, um, Fillmore. Um, sustainable businesses they have to want to go there you know a lot of people want to go where there's heavy traffic you know hurdle is heavy traffic you know elmwood is heavy traffic main street heavy traffic they want to go where it's heavy traffic but not knowing if you ever drove down bailey from one o'clock to five o'clock it's bumper to bumper you know it's heavy traffic and this business on bailey that's growing and sustaining. King City has been there for years mm-hmm. and not going out of business at all. So his business is on Bailey, but they have to want to go there first. But the city has to make it enticing for them to go there. Like it needs some cleanup in those areas. You know, if they get some cleanup in those areas and make those streets look like the Elmwoods, look like the hurdles. You're talking infrastructure? Infrastructure, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, if they clean it up and, you know, they get, you know, some of the things together over there, I think business owners would love to go there. What are some obstacles to running a successful business? Uh, yourself. How so? A lot of people, they want to be a business owner. They want to run a business, but they get in their own way. Everything in this world is obtainable. You know, first things first, everything is obtainable in this world. Um, but you have to have the motivation to go get it you know never ever my wife got my wife got this thing you can cry about it today but you get it together tomorrow you know you have to pull them up by the bootstraps and if it's an obstacle in your way this way you got to find a way to get around that obstacle and make your business successful never let anyone slow you down you know you look at jay-z he came from the projects mm-hmm. you know you look at how he came up he didn't let nothing stop him from being a billionaire he went around every obstacle. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. But he did not get in his own way. He found another way to make it happen. He had to work in a lot of circles that weren't available maybe to him yes. or other or other rap oriented business business owners. Mm-hmm. So he had to he broke the mold. Exactly. Or you look at our former president, President Obama. You know, it wasn't easy for Obama to be president. It wasn't easy for a black man to be a senator or a president, but he made it look good. He made it look easy, but he he let our younger generation know that, hey, you can be this too. 
talk to me about like like moving in those spaces like there's got to be like an attitude towards it there's got to be a look you're, you're in a suit right now like you you're coming in you are dressed to the nines there's there's got to be like an attitude you have to have and a look that goes with it to move in these spaces and if you're not sitting at these tables you're creating the table for yourself yes um it's a confidence it's, i've been confident my whole life even when i was at my lowest point i was confident when you walk in these rooms you have to be confident but you have to be knowledgeable what you're talking about because one thing you can get in front of the right people once you're in front of those people you have to know what you're saying you have to know how to put yourself in position then you have to know when to listen because sometimes in a room you can be in a room with with millionaires and you just sit there and soak it all up. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White here with business owner and key bank branch manager, Rob Cornelius. Rob, talk to me about the community work you do. I know it's a very special thing to you. You've done more than a few things this summer, including a basketball tournament, Shea Day, in honor of the late, great DJ Shea. Real quick. Are you a part of that billboard? Did you put that billboard up on on the Kensington that says "Long Live DJ Shay"? I can't take credit for that. That was all um, Benny and City Boy. That was all BSF doing that. All right, all right. Um, Drumwork Music Festival, numerous food and clothing drives. How does it feel to be able to bring these events to the community? You know what's funny? It, it, it feels surreal to me because where I come from, like I told you, I come from the Town Gardens. And if anybody in Buffalo knows about the town gardens, it's mm. one of the most poverty-stricken poverty areas in the city. Um, but my mom got us out of there when I was 18. I went away to college. She moved. She bought, you know, they got a home and they moved. So it feels really great to do this because if you can't give back, you've been blessed and you can't give back and be a blessing, it's a problem. You have to be a blessing. And I would be... I would be remiss if I didn't mention your affiliation with Conway the Machine, Benny the Butcher, Westside Gun, known as Griselda. They're, they, too, are always giving back to the community, um, even before 514. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about their local impact? I mean, they're, they're known across the globe, but they're Buffalo boys. They got their start here. Talk to me about them, please. Um, for one, let me give props where props is due. Let me give props to my guy, brother, the late, great DJ Shea, who mm -hmm. put all those guys together. But um, I could speak on Conway. Conway has a heart of gold. You know, when you listen to his music, but then you see him in action, a lot of things we did with Conway Care as far as feeding the homeless, as far as taking care of the young lady who had Bell's palsy, you know, as far as giving Thanksgiving meals out, as far as him actually giving money to people in need and paying for funerals and taking care of weddings and taking care of other people's bills off the kindness of his heart. That's him. You know, I'm just there to, to be a vessel to help him do it, you know, but, and, um, and then Benny has a really love for his city too. You know, Benny don't advertise a lot of things that he do, but he's very active in the city. If you look at a little league football team, it's called Buffalo kids. Everybody in the country know that's West side gun, but West side also gives back to the um, city of Buffalo a lot. So these guys, their heart is in Buffalo. No matter where they're at in this globe, their heart is right here in Buffalo. And they all have a heart of gold. Do you give them your perspective on things, on how to do, how to, how to 
how to give back to the community, words of advice, words of wisdom. How does that how does that go? Um, Conway, yes. Me and Conway, you know, Conway, that's my guy. You know, and, and it's not really advice. We just knock ideas off each other. You know, when it's time for a community event, you know, he'll come up and say, hey, this is what I want to do. Or I saw this in the paper. What can we do to help? And then we brainstorm from there. DJ Shea. Legend. Legend. Legend in this area. Talk about his impact on Buffalo's hip hop scene. Because I couldn't, I can't, I can't not do this without talking a little bit more about hip hop and, and the legends in this area. I'm going to tell you, it would not be no Griselda if it wasn't for the late, great DJ Shea. This Buffalo hip hop scene would not be what it is. You got to realize you got people like DJ Premier shouting him out. You got people, you know, the, the, the greats. You got the Busta Rhymes and all those guys, you know, when Shea passed, it was a lot of emails and text messages came through the chain from big time celebrities. You know, DJ Shea is the pillar, you know, when it comes to Buffalo hip hop. Even though he's not here in the physical, he's here He's here in the spiritual. If you see the way Westside, Conway, City Boy, you know, Benny, you see the way they're moving right now. Because I can't forget City Boy because City Boy was actually up under Shea and learned the business. So if you see all the BSF clothing, that's City Boy. But that's okay. all Shea's influence. You know, Shea actually laid the groundwork. You know, so he made it, you know, he made it easy for guys. He laid the groundwork. You know, Shea was, was the big homie. How do you continue his legacy in the um, years to come? You know, Shay has a son, Dominic, and he has a daughter, Shamir, and he has a grandson. My job is just to be there for them now, you know, to make sure they good, you know. But Shay's legacy, just look at any um any Griselda show, any one of the guys. You know, his legacy is living on. You know, when you when you when you listen to the radio, you hear the beats, you know, you hear eighteen wheeler, mm-hmm. you know, Shea Legacy lives on. If if you listen to um any of the Conway CDs, you know, you listen to Forever Dropping Tears, he poured his heart out into to that song. You know, Shea's legacy is gonna live on regardless. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, here with business owner, key bank, bank man bank manager, branch manager, excuse me, Rob Cornelius. You're being honored next month. Talk a little bit about that, please. Oh man, I got a I got a phone call, and um, from Rashad Howard, and it kind of kind of threw me. He said, "Hey, this this group wants to honor you for the work you've been doing," and I was really taken. But I was like, "Me? Like I'm not doing anything." To me, it's this is what you should be doing. But I'm very honored, you know. Man, you try to make me cry, Thomas. I'm oh. very, I'm, I'm very honored for this one, you know, because when other people see your work, you know, that, that's that's kind of it's touching. Yeah, well, and that's also like why you're here. That's why that's why I'm talking to you right now. You've got your hand in so many things. I see you out here doing doing community work, doing the work of the people, and so I just I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't have you on. You know what I'm saying? Get it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to circle back to just development along the east side corridors. You say it's a it's a it's we need to practice patience with with 
this growth and development. But where do you see those? Where do you see those corridors in five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years? Let's put it this way: Northland Cor- Northland Workforce was not the way it was five years ago. That was a vacant building. Um, if you look at medical campus where KeyBank is, you know right now, I say about ten years ago that was that wasn't there. You know, things are happening. Things are turning around. You know, if you see any vacant lots in the city in about five years, all these vacant lots is going to have something. It's going to be a prospering business in these lots in the city of Buffalo. Um, I can see Bailey Avenue looking like a Hurdle Avenue in the next five years. I can see Fillmore looking like that. I can see Jefferson looking like the Jefferson of old, you know, with, you know, and I can see our east side with more than one grocery store. Yeah. You know, that's, that's disturbed me when, 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 when the massacre happened at Tops that we only had one grocery store on the east side and our elderly had to, you know, get, get to North Buffalo or get, you know, way down Broadway or something like that just to get groceries. Mm-hmm. That was disturbing. When I grew up, it was a super duper in the Town Garden Plaza. It was a grocery store here. It was a, it was a super duper at Tops. Or something it was all around our city. Now it's only one for the whole east side, which is very disturbing. But I see that's about to change. Do you what what are your feelings on the tops market reopening? Put it this way, we can't let them win. You know, by closing tops, we're letting them win. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about if you close tops, what good would that do for that community? You think about what good would that do for people that's employed there, for the jobs that tops bring there, for the for the things that top supplies for that community. You know, we we can't let them win. Because what 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 happened is they want our businesses to close on our communities. So if that happened and we let them win, that means that whole community is suffering. You got people all the way from Bailey Avenue, you know, to Fillmore, to Cold Springs, to downtown that goes there to shop. So we can't get we can't give them that leverage. And are you in favor of more grocery stores, markets, in the East Side? Because the East Side is so vast yes so one you know one supermarket hey it's great but you know there should maybe there should be more there's got to be more access you know, i live in north buffalo and this is what i see i have dashes i have tops i have wegmans i have price right and i have um audis five grocery stores is in north buffalo alone you go to the east side of buffalo it's one that's a problem to me that's a, that's a huge problem we, we need a lot more than one. You know, our Bailey Avenue residents needs a grocery store. Our downtown residents needs a grocery store. We need more than one grocery store on the east side of Buffalo, period. How do we get that, how do we get that ball rolling? We, we talk to local officials, state officials. How do, we, how, do we, how do we put that pressure on them to, to, you know, talk to these grocers, put a Wegmans in this area, put a Aldi. How do we do that? I think it's about to happen. I think Tops kind of opened up the city eyes. Because before when Tops was there, it was like, oh, my God, we have Tops. This is perfect. But when they had to close, it opened up their eyes. That this is not perfect. We need more than one. You know, if, if you think about it, you know, every community has multiple grocery stores. Amherst has multiple grocery stores. Mm-hmm. But we don't in, our, in the east side of Buffalo. And that's a huge problem. But we need to get to the city officials and let them know. What are we doing about putting something in these in these areas? You know, Town Garden Plaza is empty. Yep. You know, 
I, I drive down there often. It's empty. It's, it's room for a grocery store. If you can't get a Wegmans, it's room for it's room for an Audi's or a Price Right down there. But if you're not making the moves to talk to these owners to get it down there, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last thing I want to ask you, something I ask all my guests. It's a very broad question. Just, But from your point of view, what does Buffalo need? Buffalo need unity. You know, Buffalo is one of the most segregated towns in America. I spent 10 years down south in Macon, Georgia, and they were more together than Buffalo was. And that was a problem with me. Buffalo definitely need unity. The business owners need unity and the people need unity. If we get unity, you think the only time we, we're unified is at a Bills game. At a That's Bills true. game, you know, there's no hate there. You know, so if we get unity in Buffalo, can you, can you just imagine how much our city will really grow? But how do we get to that? How do we get that unity? Is it is it a coming together of one person at a time? One person at a time. One person at a time. You know, when we stop looking at color and we stop looking at gender and we stop looking at some of these things that and we put our blindfolds on and we just start looking at the person. Because if I cut myself and I cut someone else, it's all red. Mm-hmm. You know, so one person at a time. That's the way we get it done. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, here with KeyBank branch manager Rob Cornelius. Rob, I want to thank you again for being here. Up next, Dave Debo talks police reform with Jeff Kelly of the Investigative Post. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next. Support for WBFO comes from our members and from the Theodore Roosevelt inaugural site. One of the most amazing and improbable moments in American history is the story of Theodore Roosevelt. Thrust into national prominence following great tragedy, he went on to become one of the most influential U.S. presidents. Experience the story at the house where T.R. was sworn into office, where the modern presidency began and where a legend was introduced to the world. The Theodore Roosevelt inaugural site is online at trsite.org. Almost half of Americans do not have a proper estate plan. Estate plans are more than matters of money and inheritance. They can guide your future health decisions and provide special instructions for loved ones. Request a free estate planning booklet today. Go to wned.org legacy to request yours now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Good morning. This is Dave Debo. Coming up tonight at the Merriweather Library at 6 o'clock, there is a meeting to try and figure out how much of the everything, the, the, the stories, the history, the things that were left at the top shooting site, how much of that should be saved? How much of that should become part of the history that is preserved by groups like the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library or the Buffalo History Museum? Coming up in a little bit, we will talk about that with the director of the Buffalo History Museum. But first, Jeff Kelly is here from the Investigative Post. He's a reporter there. And, Jeff, you have an article here that I think resonates really well 
with people who are concerned about the shooting because even before the shooting, during the summer of protests, during Black Lives Matter, during George Floyd, there were people calling regularly for police reform. And I want to read the first line of your article and then just let you uh, roll from there. Buffalo police just got a raise. The city got nothing, no concessions, no reforms in exchange. Explain. One, one would think, and, and I'm sure this is the premise of the article, one would think that with all these people wanting all sorts of police reform at a time when a contract is up and you do that kind of back-and-forth negotiation, that something would come of it. What went wrong? Yeah, well, let's roll back to the summer of 2020, Dave, when, uh, when you know, the streets were filled with protesters and in the halls of government you had council members uh, also responding to those protesters saying, yes, let's look at uh, the police department, how it works, how we discipline police officers, how we train them. And this is an opportune time, said Darius Pridgen, the council president, to push for reforms in the police department and police policy because we are in the midst of a contract negotiation. And, and, it, and some of the reforms that people wanted probably couldn't happen without a change in the contract. Exactly. Some things require, uh, require concessions from the union during contract negotiations. Other things, you know, that summer, Byron Brown instituted some reforms. He, uh, he, conf- he sort of reconfirmed the, uh, the ban on chokeholds. He, he, he implemented a policy of, of appearance tickets for minor infractions and things like that, things that were meant to sort of de-escalate uh, interactions between the police and the public. But some things require contractual changes. And here, here they were, pro- protesters in the streets and presumably negotiators at the table. But it turns out that contract negotiations really had been at a stalemate since the contract expired the year before in July 2019. And for the last three years, they really have not progressed. And in fact, what has happened is this. Uh, Earlier this year, the, uh, the police union threw up their hands and said, you're not serious about negotiating. You're not coming through with any counteroffers that are meaningful. So we're going to arbitration. And in arbitration, the only thing that is considered is wages and benefits. Why? H- how come, if, if it was going to arbitration, how come there wasn't a consideration of all these broader issues that, again, people wanted to see change on? Well, for one thing, because the city hadn't put them on the table. And when the union calls for arbitration, they determine what questions are going to be uh, addressed in this binding arbitration. Mm. And they said, listen, you're not serious about uh, talking about money. We asked for a 3.5% annual raise. You said zero. We'll give you nothing. That's not a really fruitful negotiating tactic to come to the table with nothing. And so the police union, whose job is not to reform themselves or the department, but rather just to get the best deal possible for the members, said, hey, we've got this tool. It's called binding arbitration. We're going to use it. We're going to use it. And this summer in July, the arbitration panel that heard the cases... Uh, from the city and from the union said, we side with the union and awarded them raises, not quite as much as the union asked for, uh, but uh, nonetheless raises. And now, this fall, the as a result, the police union has their raises and back pay, mind you. They're mm-hmm. all getting back pay for two of the three years they've been out of contract. 
And the city basically got nothing, no concessions in exchange. And but, but, but you, you say the city is still in negotiation. Can the city turn and say, okay, the arbitrator gave you your raise, but in exchange for that, I want uh, greater accountability for misconduct, or I want uh, freedom in scheduling, or I want uh, um, an expanded public database to show the charges against uh, folks with internal affairs, that kind of thing. If the carrot is already out there, if they already have the raise, can't the city say, okay, now you have to give us something? Well, if you have something already, if, you've, if the police have gotten at least partly what they want, which is money, so they have, so they have no incentive to give anything back at this point, except for this. There's, there's still some room. There's some, still some leverage for the city because there is no contract. The arbitration award that came this July that amounts to $15 million in back pay and uh, three and three and a quarter percent raises for the two years that they were out of contract, they, uh, that's not a contract. So they have to go back to the table. And the police union still wants to know about back pay for the fiscal year that just ended in July. And they want raises going forward. So the city has some leverage, but they've lost a lot because, you know, Every, every patrol officer just got a bump in their paycheck. I think it's coming out next week. So they're going to see uh, you know, a raise in their paycheck, and pretty soon they're going to get a fat check and back pay for two years. Finish your carrots and peas or you get no dessert. Well, just got, guess what? I already ate my dessert. Yeah, and the thing about this, Dave, is according to conversations I had with the police union back in that summer of 2020, this is not due. The the police union president, John Evans, told me that he had been a party to three contract negotiations in his career with the union. And he said that the Brown administration had never pushed for police reforms at those negotiating tables, that all of them had always boiled down to wages and benefits. How much money does the police union have or want? How much does the city have to give them? But the union was the one that went to the arbitrator and said, the scope of our binding arbitration here should be money alone. Are they not culpable for the small agenda, too? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But again, as you know, when back in 2020, again, we analyzed, we at Investigative Post analyzed the police contract and talked to a lot of labor lawyers. And there was a particularly fruitful conversation I had with a Cornell labor union or labor law professor who reminded me that uh, that it is not the job of the union to reform the police department that is not their that is not what they exist for right. that is the job of the of the mayor the administration whoever it may be the brown administration Basiello before him Hick, uh, griffin before him it's you know it's it's up to the administration to go in good faith to ne- the negotiating table, in good faith, but maybe with a baseball bat in their pocket, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, I hear you. And uh, and get what they want to get things like, like residency requirements, which the police department had for a while, but the Brown administration allowed to expire with the contract in 2019. Things like uh, like annual performance reviews, which the city must try to get from from the police union or they risk losing their certification, which they only got for the first time in 2019 because the uh, state accreditation agency that gave them certification said, hey, this is a requirement, but you don't have it, but we'll waive that requirement so long as you try to To get get that 
in your next contract negotiation. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet. Other things like, you know, looking at seniority, the way that assignments are determined and promotions and things like that. Those are those are sacrosanct to the union. You'd have to give up a lot to in order to buy concessions mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. And of course, they've already given up a lot of leverage if they even wanted to touch that sacred cow. How much of your impressions that you got from the union should be taken with a certain amount, uh, a grain or seven of salt? Oh, of course. Um, because obviously, if, not only is it their job to get these raises, but it's their job kind of to, to make the union look good and make the city look like it's not doing what it's supposed to. That helps their cause. Sure, absolutely, absolutely, and you know. So you, of course, when 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 the president of the union, John Evans, uh, takes umbrage at uh, the mayor portraying the union as a hurdle to reform, or you know, or unwilling to negotiate, you, of course, you take that with several grains of salt. But on the other hand, the evidence suggests. That what he says is correct. And when we, in 2020, when we analyzed the union and the history of contract changes and amendments to the contract and all this, this, all these, this evolution of the agreement over 30 years, uh, the labor lawyers we consulted said, yeah, you know, this doesn't look like a lot of back and forth. This looks like, in fact, what happens is it always boils down to money, that these issues of how the police actually run the department. Uh, what managerial uh, uh, rights uh, the, the the commissioner has on on things like discipline and and the structure of the department? These things don't really seem to be frequently addressed within the contract. Addressed of the contract. within the contract, which suggests to the people we interviewed that these are have not been priorities for the Brown administration, or before that, the Masiello administration, or the Griffin administration way, way back. So there is a history here, and we can get to this in a minute. There is a history here of no reform being included in the contract, you would say. Yeah, I, that's, that's what the people we interviewed back in 2020 said. And, you know, so I, I guess the key point is there's plenty of blame on both sides. You know, you need a full, full shaker of salt when you're talking to either side. <laughs> of these negotiations. Jeff Kelly is with us from the Investigative Post. His latest article there says, raises but no reforms for Buffalo police. We're talking a little bit about that, especially in light of, again, all the calls last summer for reform of the police department. A little bit of momentum there that was moving forward, but momentum that was stymied when they got binding arbitration that gave them raises, as I said in the analogy earlier, uh, eat your carrots and peas and you'll get dessert. They already got their dessert. They got their dessert early. Yeah. Wow. What happens now? Uh, this the, the city has had their leverage cut out completely from underneath them, haven't they? Again, not completely. There are still uh, they still have some leverage. But what both sides have told me is that they are back at the negotiating table. And on the the administration side, there's a whole new team. Uh, there's been big turnover in the law department. They handle these sort of things. There's a new corporation counsel, several uh, new lawyers working under her. Uh, and both sides, as they will publicly, expressed optimism that they will arrive at an agreement. Uh, but, what in but what besides wages and benefits that will entail 
is hard to say. I've been told that uh, that some of these things are on the table, restoring the residency requirement. Let, let me just talk about that for yeah, a moment. Yeah, okay, because, tell me. Because well, if I'm an advocate of police reform, what give, give me the argument, so what? What does residency do? Well, you know, th- th- there's a couple of arguments. One of them, uh, and if you're a, a police reform advocate, probably the primary one is you tend, if you live in the city, in the neighborhood, that you serve as a police officer, you are more likely to forge bonds with the people you are protecting and the people you have to police. And you could argue that it makes for a more diverse force, theoretically. Theoretically, it makes for a more diverse force, which understands the city they're patrolling better. And, you know, there's also an economic argument. You live in the city, you shop in the city, you spend money in the city, you spend the city, the money the city is paying you in the city where you live. And that's, you know, that's a practical reason for it. And here's the thing. So the, the, uh, the, the police contract that expired in 2019 had a residency requirement. I believe it was the first one ever. And for, so that new hires for a while, mm-hmm. had to live had to live in the city for a pretty substantial amount of time. Um, older officers were not required, so there was a little, right, little right. bit of awkwardness there. Like, and, oh, and this is something that's in place for a lot of city uh, yeah. employees. I know some teachers that deferred their retirement because they want or, or, or deferred their move until after retirement because. While they were an active teacher, they they couldn't necessarily get out of the city. But once they retired, they did. Yeah. This this happens. This is the structure. Yeah. So so get this as an example of of dysfunction. So so there's this residency requirement. Great, but it expires in 2019 when the contract expires. You know, and and believe me, I'm I've been told like there was no real effort to negotiate a new contract before the old one expired. So it was allowed to expire, and then suddenly new hires since July 2019, have not been required to live in the city. Weren't the people on the force at the time the contract expired subject to the terms of the old contract? Some of the people who were hired in that spell in between, so that you have veteran officers not compelled to live in the city, a whole uh, cadre of new hires compelled to live in the city. Then after 2019, the last three years, not compelled to live in the city. Even though they were... That is correct. They were operating under the terms of the pre-existing but expired contract. Correct. So, uh, yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> I know. So, so that's the price you pay for, for not seriously engaging contract negotiations ahead of time. Was it just You've got not this being weird patchwork. Enfor- was it just not being enforced? How, how, how did it turn out that it was in the contract but not happening? Those terms of the contract expired in 2019. That's it. Mm. So so wages stayed the same as they were, but uh, but but those provisions like that were erased. So so you know those things might be on that might be on the table again. Uh, annual performance reviews because as we discussed, mm-hmm. they 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 really have to get them in there. But that's going to come at a steep price from the union. They they want something in return. Also, possibly, I was told that they were discussing certification of individual officers, which is a big step, and that would require, that's a big give from the union, that would require 
that individual officers get certified by an accreditation agency, and that certification would have to be renewed. And the value of that is you make sure that officers you remain- You could weed out some bad apples. Yeah, you, they remain fit to do fit for duty. Their training is up to date. And training, that's another, also a big negotiating point. For the union, it most they tend to be happy to accept more training. Their interest in is in how they get paid for training sessions, how that works into the schedule, is it overtime, et cetera. Uh, it's all about, again, that's for the union, that's all about money. Yeah. And frankly, it's all about money for the administration too. Well, training would require a program that probably is not cheap. That's right. That's right. You, you have to pay for the training and you have to pay the officers for their time. Another item that I see you wrote about is the idea that right now, the officers in internal affairs, the ones that are investigating possible wrongdoing, uh, are actually members of the union rather than kind of more independent than that. Yeah, that's always been a, a kind of a sticky wicket. And it's not just internal affairs. It's that the patrol officers' supervisors, most of them, all but 10 members, uh, 10 members of the uniformed uh, department, are members of the union. So your lieutenants, your uh, your captains, they're all union members, and they're meant to supervise uh, and discipline their fellow union members. Mm. It, can, it can get it's a little sticky, sticky. I imagine. Yeah. Now, I said to come back to it. Talk about the history. Mayor Griffin, Mayor Mazziello, Mayor Brown, you looked into the contracts under all of them and found really that this, can I call it a disinterest, isn't new. Yeah, that's right, and that's what that's what police tell me as well. And you know, I just last week I was talking to a patrol officer who said, and I was asking him about the raises forthcoming, and he said, "Yeah, you know, this is how it always works. We always go to arbitration and we get a raise through arbitration, and nothing changes." He said, "And it's fine by me." <laughs> well, of course, yeah, <laughs> I picture that. Right. Um, talk to me about what happens next. You say some of uh, the negotiations are already underway? That's what I've been told. I'm not sure exactly uh, the negotiating schedule, but I understand that this month they intended to sit back down at the table. I don't know if that, I think that probably was dependent upon uh, the Common Council approving uh, this arbitration, or rather the release of money to pay this arbitration award, which they did last week. I want to go back to the quote you had earlier with uh, uh, Darius Pridgen basically saying, uh, no one has told us, oh no, this is not uh, Pridgen, this is uh, Rivera. No one has told us anything. I was just talking to the Finance Committee Chair Wyatt yesterday. He hadn't heard about it either. Is the council even part of this process? They're really not, except in as much as they, they, uh, they have to sign off on, on, the, on, the, on the paying out of the award. That it has to go to, but yeah, when I called Dave Rivera for a comment on the story, he was surprised to learn that two months earlier, there had been an arbitration award that was going to cost the city millions of dollars. And he, who chairs the police advisory board. He himself a former, he, well, he's not the, even former. He's a police officer on leave to be on the council. He's a reti retired detective sergeant. Okay. And he, yeah, and he, uh, he, uh, he yeah, and he chairs the, uh, the police oversight committee. And he didn't know. And in fact, in fact, the Brown administration did not submit the necessary items to the council until the day our story published. And, and at that point, it, it, you know, 
it went through the process and got approved last week. Can the council push reform into a contract, or is that just primarily the, the law department, the, the administration? It's pretty much the law department. I mean, they can try to use they, – so they hold the purse strings, right? So they can – they can try to use that. They we can, will not approve this amount of money unless A, B, and C are in there. Right. Theoretically. Right. But on the other hand, that becomes tricky because the poli- this is a binding arbitration award. So the police union can and has gone to court to get an affirmation that the city must pay this out. You know, the binding arbitration So the council has a bit of a gun to their head. Too. It overrules all. Okay. The arbitration award overrules all. I. I, I ask this uh, question almost at the end of every interview, and I know you're a neutral journalist, so it might not be as appropriate as it is in other settings. But are you optimistic? Let me rephrase it. Let me ask it differently. Do you picture progress and change coming or not? I think that if we're talking strictly about this process, this contract negotiation, I think that probably the union will uh will concede some of these things, like the performance review, perhaps even the residency requirement, and the city uh, will probably be compelled to, um, in exchange, uh, give similar raises as they've given for the previous two years uh, in, in out years. So I don't think you'll see serious reform to disciplinary procedures. I don't think you'll see new transparency measures, and I don't think you will see any, nobody's going to touch the seniority system. And none of that can happen independently outside of the contract. Correct. Correct. So once they push away from that dinner table, the dessert's been consumed. I, I, will, I will say that there, there, is, there are opinions out there that say that the disciplinary procedures can be addressed outside the contract, but the city of Buffalo has never shown any willingness to push that envelope, to to challenge uh, those protections in court. All right. Jeff Kelly, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Jeff Kelly is a reporter for Investigative Post. You can read his article at investigativepost.org. Stay with us. When we come back from the break, we'll look at a meeting tonight to try and figure out what to do with the mementos and stories and other parts of the history of May 14th. This is Buffalo What's Next. Stay with us. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from New Day Live, presenting Ray LaMontagne Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo Theater for the Monovision Tour with special guest Lily Miola. Ticket information at shays.org or ticketmaster.com. Ray LaMontagne Live, Saturday, November 5th at Shays Buffalo. Funding for WBFO's Business and Economy Desk is made possible by MNT Bank. Understanding what's important for 160 years. Member FDIC. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. 
And we end the program today with a preview of tonight's community meeting with Buffalo History Museum and the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. Tonight at 6 in the Meriwether Library, 1324 Jefferson Avenue, they're going to start the process of at least talking about what they should save, what they should, I don't want to say throw away, but maybe not include in a public uh, exhibit, whether there even should be an exhibit, what happens, how does the community, and especially the museum that has been charged with preserving history, how do they preserve the stories of May 14th? Rather than just charge on in, they said, let's let's have a meeting on all of this first. That meeting is tonight. Joining us now to talk a little bit about it is the History Museum's Executive Director, Melissa Brown. Melissa, thanks for being with us. Sure. I'm happy um, to have been asked. Thank you. Describe this effort. What is it that you're looking for? So the 514 Collecting Initiative and this particular community conversation that we're convening at the Meriwether Library is to really... Um, essentially listen to the community, uh, we're looking for input on how they would like uh, the memorials, particularly at the site, to be preserved, or if they want them preserved, um, how best to maybe do that with community partners. So the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library um, will also have representatives there, as will some of the other um, heritage-based partners in the community. And is this to ultimately create an exhibit at the History Museum or just memorialize everything that happened? Well, I think it could be both of those things. And it's probably too premature to know. Uh, what we what we do know is that this was a um, historic and significantly traumatic event for our community. And uh, in recent times, the museum has tried to become more of a proactive collector rather than a reactive collector and making sure we uh, are trying to document the experiences of our own times. And so, you know, we would like to engage the community in a conversation about how we might best document this moment, whether it's in um, digital format, oral histories, actual items being preserved from the spontaneous memorial site, you know, any of those things, uh, gaining insight on that. And then, you know, eventually, I, I think one of the things at the History Museum we do is, you know, we're collecting things for the future. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily for an exhibit at this point, but maybe something in the future. Um, it might actually become part of a display if that's something that the community in, in some of the feedback we receive that people would be interested in. You know, I really think we're just open to having a conversation. You mentioned the word trauma. Are you in any way afraid that this could be triggering? Um, I think that um, we're afraid that if we don't engage in a conversation, you know, things might be lost to time. And so, you know, of course, I, I think everything around this is, um, is very difficult, let alone for um, people who are directly impacted. Um, but at the same time, you know, we want to try to be a resource to have the conversation. So, you know, if the feedback is, you know, we, we need more time with this or, you know, this maybe isn't the right time. I think that's what we're trying to gauge. But we also don't want the winter to come and um, for memorial items left at the site to um, suffer any impact from that, that we never have a conversation. So, yeah, I, I expect it's going to be very difficult. Um, and, it, you know, it is. And depending on people's perspectives and their um, relationship to the events that happen, it could be very 
difficult. So, you know, that's why we thought it'd be best to start with a conversation. This was a very public event. There was a lot of uh, almost automatic chronicling of what went on. Why is it important from your perspective to go another step and get uh, personal records, community oral histories, all that that richness that that you're talking about now? Sure. Um, You know, I think it's important to try to collect from in many different ways and and document in many different ways. First of all, because, um, you know, I think it's a way, just like we all learn things in different ways, I think we all share things in different ways. And for some people, you know, uh, actual objects and items from a moment in time um, can create a powerful message. For other people, they like to hear it in someone's voice. So I think it's kind of trying to intentionally collect a variety of different items. When we first started talking about this, um, and actually before we even really were thinking about it, because we were actively, you know, the community was, as you mentioned, it was very well documented. There was lots of media going on, and we were all kind of just processing it ourselves. Um, A lot of our uh, museum colleagues across the country who've been in places, um, particularly some of our colleagues at the State Museum who had worked on the 9-11 exhibit, um, the historical society that's near the Orlando nightclub um, shooting, they reached out and said, you know, hey, we are so sorry. And, you know, here's some of the learnings that we've had from this, something that we never expected to be involved with in our community and, and shared that with us, which is, I think, what prompted us to maybe think more, um, I guess, think more about it more quickly um, than maybe if they hadn't have reached out. Unfortunately, I think um, because of some of the traumatic events that have happened in our country recently, um, this is something that, you know, I think museums are um, dealing with. And, And also wanting to be like, you know, I think so often people think that history happened to people very far removed from us 200, 400, thousands of years ago. And and there are threads that are constantly tying us to those experiences, whether they're, you know, 20 seconds ago, 20 minutes ago, 20 years ago, you know, those threads are there. And, you know, the initial feedback that I've gotten before, you know, even going to the meeting is that it's important as much to collect the community's response as it is to consider how how do we get to this place and what is the history that leads into that and and how are these things interrelated so you know, i think it's just trying to um be intentional and um and bring as many items together to help frame that story you know and share that story for future conversations whether that's you know something that's very immediate or something that you know is is going to be in an exhibit with people who I've never, who aren't even born yet, you know, and we have to be thinking about that too. So then let's recap, uh, when and where is this meeting and how many people would you like and what do you expect? So we're hoping to have as much communica- or community participation um, this evening at the Meriwether Library. Um, we really are just sharing a bit about what prompted us to start having some meetings to discuss what may be possible between uh, some of the organizations we already partner with, also realizing that there's probably more people who need to be involved in the conversation than we even realize. So um, we're just hoping that anybody who's interested in learning more will come out and participate and we're really, for, for those who are thinking about coming, what to expect is we're just really asking some questions to understand better what people's expectations are, what people would like to see come out of um, 
you know, the memorials and remembering this event. That's Melissa Brown from the Buffalo History Museum, that meeting tonight at 6 at the Meriwether Library. Thanks for being with us. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations.